Welcome to the Public Morality. Yale constitutional law professor Akhil Lamar is one of the foremost experts on the Constitution. His work has been cited by Supreme Court justices on both sides of the aisle more than any other living non-emeritus scholar. The author of numerous books and articles, his latest text, The World That Made Us, is a compelling narrative of history coupled with his legal acumen to offer an understanding of the Constitution for the general public. The book has already received wide praise and we're honored on the public morality to be among the first to interview him. Professor Keel Lamar, welcome to the public morality. Thank you so much for having me, Byron. Mm-hmm. Uh, first of all, I, I want let's congratulations on on, on a very and a most important text. I, I I enjoyed it in its entirety, and I want to begin the conversation with words from your postscript. Why this book? And I would add, why now? Because uh, we Americans are very diverse people, um, different races, different ethnicities, different religions, uh, speaking different um, uh, native languages. And what we have in common, black and white, male and female, Jew and Gentile, coastal and heartland, Republican and Democrat, uh, red and blue, what we have in common is the Constitution. And if we don't actually, uh, and our history as, as Americans, even though some of our forebears weren't here 200 years ago, my ancestors weren't, and, and some people's ancestors came in chains and other people's ancestors came with bullwhips. But what we have in common today, if we're gonna live together um, and make it work, we the people, we're a democracy, what we have in common is our constitutional text and our uh, constitutional saga, um, which includes the Declaration of Independence and um, uh, the Federalist Papers and, and all sorts of um, uh, other episodes surrounding our constitutional saga. So that's, that's why this book, because we need to have a, an account of, of what it is that, that made us us, what, what, what makes us Americans, um, uh, t- uh, what, what continues to make us Americans. Um, an, another way of thinking about the title of my book, which is the words that made us, is the words that made the U.S. So that's why this book, and I'll say one other thing, I'm the child of immigrants. I was the first generation of, in my family to be born in the U.S., and, and I feel very lucky that I'm born in the U.S. I have two dozen first cousins, and most of them weren't lucky enough to be born here. And a lot of them have tried to come here. And growing up, I thought a lot about why, um, you know, they're all trying to come here. We're not trying to go there. What is it that's special about America? And I thought it has something to do with the constitution. And so I, that's, that's what the book is, an exploration of um, what it is that, that makes America, America. And why now? There are really two reasons. One, because I finally think I figured it out. It's taken me 50 years. I started thinking about this when I was about 10 years old. So that's the the most honest subjective reason. Um, But objectively, it is a good time for this book because, um, for example, every four years we pick a president. That's a constitutional decision. Um, You you and I were talking offline about football. And if you, we're the drafting committee and every year, you know, just like a drafting committee has to pick prospects. If you're trying to draft for a quarterback, you need to know who the good quarterbacks were and how they played the position and how this person, you know, who who wants to join your team compares to Ken Stabler or Tom Brady or Joe Montana or, or, or John Elway or whatever. You need to understand how to, how to pick for the position. Well, if you're picking a president, you need to understand the presidency 
And I'd want you to under, be able to know well, who did it well, who didn't. Um, why was George Washington um, the first president? Why did John Adams actually get tossed out on his butt um, and, and was the only early president not to get reelected? So why now? Personally, um, and this is a book written for everyone, uh, uh, red and blue, but um, I voted against Trump twice um, because I didn't think that he actually understood the presidency. Um, and when you finish reading the book, you'll be in a better position to agree or disagree with me because we can talk about um, George Washington and John Adams and Thomas Jefferson and James Madison all the way through Andrew Jackson, the early presidents and whether they did a good job or a bad job. And we will talk about some of them uh, in just a moment. But, you know, it, it just in your last answer, you know, um, one of my favorite quotes um, uh, comes from Justice Lewis Brandeis. And he says, the most important political office is that of private citizen. And it sounds like you are harboring similar thoughts when you pen this text. Yes, this is a book. It's a long book. Uh, the type is big. Uh, the font is big. So if you if your eyes are failing as mine are, this will be easy on your eyes. Um, um, but it's a long book. It expects a lot uh, of, uh, of the reader, but I respect the reader. And the reader that I wrote this for is not a fellow law professor. It's a fellow American citizen. Um, and, and what we have in common, whether we're law professors or um, uh, plumbers or gardeners or whatever is the Constitution. And I do expect a lot of my fellow citizens because on all sorts of things, you know, again, you and I were talking about sports, you know, it, it, it's meaningful if we can, you know, it gives us something in common if we can talk about football or, or baseball, if we can talk about Mozart or the Beatles, uh, um, you know, who's your favorite author? You know, do you like Shakespeare? Do you um, um, uh, 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 like Maya Angelou? Whatever. Um, but um, the one, th and, but even if you didn't know baseball or football or music um, or sports, you could actually do your job. Um, uh, um, you could be a good parent, a good spouse, um, a, a good person, a, a good uh, uh, employee or employer. But if you don't understand the Constitution, you can't do your job because your job is to be a citizen with everyone else, to deliberate with the rest of us in good faith. It's the one thing that we all have to do. We don't all have to do music or football um, or or um, uh, or or um, uh, uh, literature, but we, we all have to be citizens together. And so I am in the Brandeis tradition, absolutely. You, you write that this text tells a story of America's first 80 years, or as you like, as you call it, I, I love this, the first four score, 1760-1840. Why specifically that timeline? Almost every book, and that's one of the new things about the book. I wanted four score because Lincoln's my hero, and I want you to hear that echo, that resonance. And volume two is going to be from 1840 to 1920, the next 80 years, the words that made us equal, um, uh, the ending of slavery, uh, 14th Amendment, civil rights for all, 15th Amendment, um, equal suffrage for, for African-Americans, and ending with the 19th Amendment, uh, woman suffrage. So the words that made us equal is going to be the next 80 years. And then 80 years after that will be 1920 to 2000. Those are going to be the words that made us modern. So I, I like the resonance of four score because I want you to think about Lincoln, even though he's he's slightly off stage in, in, in this book. He, um, um, but um, 
But this book is new and distinctive in that I start the story in 1760. Almost everyone else who writes about the run up to the Declaration of Independence, the American Revolution, starts the story in 1763. So there are 20 books out there, 50 books out there, that in their subtitle will be 1763 to 1776. Um, so the run up to the American Revolution. But in my story, actually, it really does start in 1760. One king dies, George II, a new king, um, uh, takes the throne. If uh, if you if you watch the Netflix series The Crown, you know that the successions are kind of important events. Word reaches America of this in December 1760, and that event actually is the start of um, what will later become real conflict and confrontation between. Um, we would say the Americans and um, and the British. Of course, at the time, these a lot of these people, their identity is they're Britain, they're Britons in America. Even if they've never been to Britain, they see themselves as as um, British. Um, and in 1760, they are British subjects in America, and they in Massachusetts, in Virginia, and they um, hail their new. Um, king and and they toast him and God save the king and and so um, but within a few months uh, an event happens it's called the writs of assistance case it's early 1761 and in that case we begin to see the seeds of the real conflict between uh, 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 the patriots um, the people who will become patriots and the people who will become loyalists well, let me say it one other way I, I spent a year in Boston um, and, and uh, act one, scene one. If you're a movie person, this is the first time Harry met Sally, okay? Act one, scene one is in Boston, and I've got three people who are gonna be with, together in a room for the first time, and important stuff happens in that room. It's a courtroom. Um, and and it's, it's early 1761 where these three people are in uh, what today is called the Old State House. Um, back then it was called the Courthouse in Boston. And one of them, who's the chief judge in this courtroom, is going to be the most important American-born loyalist. So in 1776, he's going to be the most important person born in America who sides with George III. And most people haven't heard of him. But if you don't know him, then you're missing half the story of the American Revolution. Who are the people on their side? His name is Thomas Hutchinson. The lawyer who brings this case, he's a firebrand. He's a crusading lawyer for the people. He's more important early on than Patrick Henry. He's, he's Boston's version of Patrick Henry. His name is James Otis. He's gonna coin a phrase in a few years, taxation without representation is tyranny. He's a very big person. He's gonna precipitate a Stamp Act Congress, which is, which is the first time Americans up and down the continent get together to resist London. So he's gonna be a very big person. He's the lawyer, the crusading lawyer, before anyone's heard of Patrick Henry or Thomas Jefferson. Okay, so he's there, the judges, and then there's this little fly on the wall. No one's ever heard of him before. He just has passed the bar. He's 25 years old and he's sitting, he's taking notes um, and he's realizing this is actually something interesting and important. He's gonna become one of the six most important American founders along with George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, and Ben Franklin. And his name, of course, is John Adams. And at the time, he's a nobody from nowhere. But he later, 50 years later, says, then and there in that courtroom, the child independence was born. Those were the seeds of the American Revolution. Now, in fact, he misremembers a bunch of things. He doesn't get it quite right. 
but his, his, his deep recollection that, that something really important happened then is absolutely right. And by the time you get to the end of chapter one, chapter one takes you through a lot of interesting details, but by the, and you might say, why am I going up this hill and down this hill and around and, and, uh, and over? But by the time you get to the end of the first chapter and it's still 1761, you'll have a different way of thinking about the American Revolution. And so it does start earlier than most books, which start in 1763, 64, 65. And why do they start then? Because there's a peace treaty between um, England and France. They've been engaged in a world war, what we call the French and Indian War, what the world calls the Seven Years War. And in 1763, there's a peace treaty and France cedes Canada to Britain and the war was really expensive and the British need to pay for all the debt that they racked up and so they start to tax Americans. And almost everyone starts the story with the Treaty of Paris, the formal um, transfer of, of Canada from France to England and England's desperate search for revenue to pay for that war. And they figure let's tax the Americans because they were the ones who benefited from Canada's fall. Since you, since you mentioned uh, Otis in your last answer, I'm, I'm going to throw out something else that Otis is known for. Um, what are writs of assistance? And talk about that relationship to the ratification of the Fourth Amendment. So writs of assistance are, are writs. What's a writ? It's W-R-I-T. It's a piece of paper that typically issues from a court. Um, and they're different kinds of writs. And they, each one has its own tradition and rules. And they typically tell the person who receives the writ, the addressee, the person to whom the writ is addressed, um, that you have to do X or not do Y. So for example, um, your, um, our audience has probably heard of the writ of habeas corpus, which is a writ in which the judge says, you've got someone in custody, bring that person uh, uh, into court. I wanna find out if this person is being lawfully detained. That's called a writ of habeas corpus. It's also called the great writ. Um, um, if the Supreme Court today wants to hear a case from a lower court, it issues a thing called a writ of certiorari that says, we'd like you to send the record of the case to us because we'd like to review your, your decision. A writ of assistance was a piece of paper that issued, um, that authorized the person who had that writ to search and seize virtually, um, uh, search anywhere, um, uh, including even a private house, um, uh, a private dwelling place um, uh, to uh, locate smuggled goods, goods for which um, customs duties hadn't been paid. And it was called a, a writ of assistance because the person who had that piece of paper not only could break down a door and walk into anyone's house looking for smuggled um, uh, um, uh, items for which their customs duties hadn't been paid, but could compel help, assistance from anyone he happened to see, a local constable, a watchman, a, just a private person walking by. If he needed help, he could say, I summon your assistance to, to help me carry out this search or seizure. So that, and, and Otis says, wow, this is too, way too, this is totalitarian, it's way too sweeping, no one's house is safe, government, Officials now have roving power to search and seize without even any probable cause or oath or affirmation or specific reason to, to suspect this house rather than that house. That, that invades 
the, and we would say today, the privacy of our home. A man's house is his castle. That, that phrase goes all the way back to um, British cases from the early 1600s, um, um, 150 years earlier. So, so Otis says, this invades people's um, houses um, uh, in an unjustifiable way. And that's later gonna become, in after the revolution, uh, a state constitutional provision in Massachusetts drafted by actually John Adams, the lawyer in the room, um, Article 14 of the Massachusetts State Constitution of 1780. And this will become the Fourth Amendment um, to the federal constitution that limits the ability of government to, um, um, to, uh, uh, to do search and seizing. The, the Fourth Amendment says um, that the, the, the uh, people have a right um, to be secure against unreasonable searches and seizures of their persons, houses, papers, and effects. Um, and, and so, yes, it goes, now, and I'll say one other thing. Um, okay, so it, it, it's, it's an anticipation of the Fourth Amendment that's risk of assistance controversy, but it's also, you can see it as an anticipation of debates that we have today about um, police misbehavior more generally, um, uh, uh, co cops, um, not just customs officials. So here's specifically, um, it turns out Otis loses. And for the first time, really, um, uh, uh, um, I tried to explain to a general audience, and no one really had done this before, why actually Otis deserved to lose. Um, and Hutchinson, who was the chief judge, wasn't this um, horrible tyrannical figure um, in this episode. Because it might seem, this is outrageous. This government official without any oath or affirmation or probable cause, without any specific reason for breaking into this house rather than that house, can, that, that's, that's totalitarian. But here's the, the, the wrinkle. If the, the customs official who did that, armed with this piece of paper, this writ, finds nothing, finds there's no um, uh, smuggled goods, the homeowner can sue and get massive damages um, because the writ only authorized the intrusion if the, uh, the, the customs official found stuff. Um, but if he didn't, if the person was absolutely innocent, um, they could sue for damages. And knowing that in advance, the customs official is not going to search willy-nilly because he doesn't want to be you know, sued for all he's worth. And the local jury isn't going to be amused. They're going to be fellow homeowners um, from the area. That's a debate we're having right now about when cops misbehave, should you, you be allowed to sue them? And should they be able to claim some sort of immunity? Um, and today they can. I'm actually opposed to that. that they're being able to claim immunity. Interestingly enough, Clarence Thomas in recent uh, years has actually said he maybe agrees with me about that. And, and, he, and he's now on the civil libertarian. He's not always on my side on everything, um, but on some things um, um, he, he is. And so, so your audience is gonna hear more about this issue of qualified immunity for police officers when they misbehave, when they search and seize too aggressively, whether it's a stop and frisk or um, a search and seizure in a car or a search and seizure um, in a home. Well, well, that actually brings me a um, perfect segue for my next question, which actually may be more appropriate for not your second book, but your third book in this series. Um, it seems to me that the evolution of technology challenges the Fourth Amendment 
in a way like no other within the Bill of Rights. And I'm, I'm thinking you talked about writs of assistance, and then we go to 20th century. You've got Olmstead uh, versus U.S., and then Katz versus U.S., and the Patriot Act and beyond. So my question, is it possible we might reach a point whereby technology could render the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures blurred such that reasonable and unreasonable might become indistinguishable. Your thoughts? So I, I hope not. I don't think so. I think our courts have been pretty good about recognizing new technological threats. And it's not unique to the Fourth Amendment. Let me start with that last point. Um, today, the First Amendment protects stuff beyond printing presses and oral speech. But the First Amendment is understood to protect a radio broadcast, a podcast, a television um, uh, broadcasting, uh, the internet, um, Zoom, uh, um, uh, email, whatever. So the First Amendment has broadened to deal with new means of expression and communication. And I think that's absolutely as it should be. The, um, uh, interstate Commerce Clause today covers a lot more um, than it used to because there's a lot more stuff that's truly interstate commerce because more stuff um, flows across state lines and across national borders. Um, my kids think that milk comes from cartons, you know, because <laughs> um, they've never seen a cow. But that's because we have refrigeration and transportation technology, which means you could have cows only in three places, Wisconsin, Vermont, and California, and everyone could drink from those cows. But that's because of new technology, refrigeration technology, pasteurization technology, um, faster transportation. So let me, now let me talk about the Fourth Amendment. Here's what courts have done. They've said, even if you don't the government doesn't physically invade um, the home, it might be intruding on privacy if it, for example, um, plants a wiretap on a telephone line outside your home, uh, connecting um, your phone with someone else's phone. So, so the court has recognized, you mentioned the Katz case, um, that physical intrusion is no longer necessary in order to be recognized as a search or seizure. There was another case, um, actually in Justice Scalia, who people might think has an, often a narrow view um, of, of rights and um, and and he and uh, this was one of his more important decisions. It's a case called Kylo. The government had this um, uh, um, um, heat detector, um, and it could point it. It's like a ray gun um, um, in a direction, and it could and, and and it could basically give you a thermal image. And Scalia says, even if you never invade a home, if you point that thermal image at a home, because they're trying to figure out if marijuana was being um, uh, grown hydroponically, if they were, and you could tell if there were a lot of heat lamps in, in the attic or something, um, it would give off a certain thermal um, image um, uh, picture in which the government would say, aha, that's, they're, they're growing pot um, using um, um, heat lamps. Um, and um, so, uh, but they didn't um, have probable cause to point the Reagan at a home. They didn't physically invade the home, but Justice Lee said, ah, but you're actually intruding upon the privacy of the home. Using that Reagan, the government could tell whether the lady of the house was taking a bath or a sauna at a given moment. And that's, a, that's something kind of pretty private and intimate. So the court protected that. More recently, the court has actually gone out of its way to say, 
Oh, um, uh, cell phones deserve some special protection. They're not just phones anymore. They're like your entire life. They're, they're your diary. Um, they're your library. Um, and so the government needs very special justification to intrude upon it. That's a case called Riley versus California. So I think the court has read generatively words like papers and, and houses. Um, remember the Fourth Amendment talks about the right of people to be secure in their persons, their bodies, their papers, their houses, and then everything else, their effects. So I actually think the court has done a pretty good job of uh, expanding Fourth Amendment protections to meet new um, technological threats. I'm speaking with the Yale Law Professor and Political Scientist Akhil Lamar about his latest book, The World That Made Us. Professor Lamar, how would you respond to someone who might say to you, since the Declaration uh, was a document of secession, why were the 11 states wrong for offering secessionist documents beginning in 1860? And wasn't that Jefferson Davis's argument in his farewell address to the Senate in 1861 that sovereignty was in the province of the states? Your response. Two or three things. First, in 1776, I actually say each colony um, basically was on its own and no colony could speak for any other. And um, uh, uh, so um, there were 13 separate entities. Um, now, from the British point of view, the declaration was illegal. Um, they, uh, the, the colonies didn't have a right to break away. But the Americans in their Declaration of Independence um, offered um, uh, uh, submitted facts to a candid world justifying what they've done as a matter of morality. They basically said, we, did, we don't get to vote for parliament at all, and, or we didn't pick the king. Parliament is not listening to us. The king is not listening to us. We've tried to petition. Um, they've imposed all sorts of, uh, 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 um, uh, they've, they've done all sorts of tyrannical acts. They're taxing us without allowing us to be represented. Um, they're waging war on us. And the war has actually already um, begun. They've shut down our local governments. Um, they've shut down local juries. They've suspended, um, uh, uh, they've abrogated many of our rights. Um, so at a certain point, um, given that we never voted for them at all um, and that they're imposed as brute force on us and we've appealed to them um, patiently and peacefully and they haven't even listened to what we said and now they're waging war on us under Lockean principles uh, that, that, that we are bound by government only insofar as it protects our rights. Government isn't protecting our rights anymore. And when government becomes truly tyrannical, we, we, there's a natural right of, of resistance. That's the, the, the our argument of the Declaration of Independence. Now, two things happen later on that are important. One, this is a, a big theme of my book. In 1776, each of the 13 colonies was basically its own sovereign nation. And they were just in a loose league together, kind of like NATO or like the EU. So, so there was a right of secession um, in 1780. Each state was on its own. But in 1787-88, we, the people of the United States, 
agreed to a constitution that actually uh, created an effect of consolidation, a corporate merger. That's what the perfect union of the preamble was all about. No state was bound if it didn't say yes. Rhode Island initially didn't say yes. North Carolina didn't say yes. And when George Washington takes his oath of office as president, only 11 states are in. But the deal in 1788 was you don't have to join, but once you're in, you're in. And it's different than it was um, under the Articles of Federation and the, the Declaration of Independence. And everyone understood that that was the deal, including the people in Virginia and South Carolina. Once you're in, you're in. And we voted democratically state by state to do that. So, so there, was, there was consent. So that's one thing. In 1788, um, there was a conscious decision made to create an indivisible, indissoluble union. That's point one. Point two is that when you get to 18, oh, and this um, act was done um, not by one state leaving the um, Articles of Confederation, but by at least nine, you know, nine states left. Um, and and uh, so it was, it was, it was a, a multilateral, um, super majoritarian uh, move to create a new, better union. Um, in 1860, each uh, South Carolina says, we are free to leave just um, on our own, which is not what the deal was in, in the constitution. Um, and they didn't have good reasons to do it. They weren't able to come up with um, a, a list of, of grievances that shows how their rights were really being violated. In fact, the only reason they seceded, frankly, was so that they could violate the, the dignity of other, the rights of other human beings, slaves, okay? So nothing bad had been done to them. They were represented in the Congress. They were represented in the Electoral College, overrepresented, thanks to three-fifths, in the presidency, overrepresented on the Supreme Court. Not, no, no tyranny had happened to, at, at all. They were not able to come up with a plausible declaration of independence appealing to um, morality and, and, and first principles. And, and they were violation, violating democracy and federalism, democracy, because they were um, uh, uh, disregarding a lawful election that had happened. Remember, the Americans don't get to elect parliament or the king in 1776. South Carolina and Virginia are part of electing Congress and the, the House and the Senate and the presidency and who picked the, in turn the, the Supreme Court. So um, what they were doing is undemocratic because Lincoln was elected fair and square and in violation of what they had agreed to do um, in the constitution in 1788 and without a good moral justification and totally unilateral and paying no attention to what Americans elsewhere thought. Now, conversely, respond to those um, who might fall into the um, uh, woke generation who may see no relevance in the founding documents uh, because the Declaration and the Constitution, at least in its application, excluded much of the American populace. And, and, and tie your answer to the text you just wrote, please. Okay, so first, things are going to happen later on that are important. An, an abolition of slavery, civil, uh, uh, the 14th Amendment promising its full and equal civil rights to all, um, the 15th Amendment, black suffrage, the 19th Amendment, women's suffrage, getting rid of poll tax, disfranchisement in the 20th century, and, and um, letting 18-year-olds vote. So first, stuff happens later on. But let me just in the moment tell you how extraordinary the act of constitution was. And I say act, constitution is a deed. It's not just a text, it's a constituting, it's an ordainment, an establishment. But here's what happened. We, the people of the United States, actually put a plan to a, a proposal, a mere piece of paper 
to a vote up and down the continent about, that's what the first sentence of the constitution says. We, the people of the United States do, it was a deed of doing, ordain and establish this constitution. And it wasn't perfect at all, but judged by the, 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 the standards of its time in its moment, it was far and away the most democratic thing that had ever happened in the history of the world. More people got to vote than had ever got to vote on how they and their posterity would be governed than had ever been allowed to vote on anything before in human history. So that, let me tell you, so you can't judge it just by the woke standards of 2021. You have to judge what happened in 1788 by what the world looks like in 1787 or 1786 or 1686 or 1586 or go all the way back. So here are the three or four big points. Democracy has almost never existed on the planet. Um, before um, uh, the American Revolution. Yeah, um, there were a few ancient Greek city-states that made democracy work at a tiny, at a, at a, a city level for, um, 500 years before Christ, but then that fizzled out, the glory that was um, ancient Athens. And yes, um, um, Rome, before it became an empire, was a republic that lasted for a, a, a few hundred years, but it collapsed. And in 1776, let's say, the only um, folks who govern themselves on the planet are the Brits to some degree, even though they got a king that no one voted for and a house of lords that no one voted for and the Swiss. And that's it. Everywhere else, for almost all the planet, almost all of history are governed by kings, emperors, czars, sultans, feudal lords, tribal chieftains, thugs who just tell people what to do and the people have to obey. That's the history of the world. Um, and, and then and, in seven, and, and the British never actually had a written constitution that they put to a vote. And actually the ancient Greeks never put a written constitution to a vote, neither did ancient Romans, neither did the Swiss. Um, in 1776, they didn't put the declaration to a vote of the people. They didn't put any of the early constitutions and state constitutions in 1776 to a vote or the Articles of Confederation to a vote. They put the constitution to a vote state by state. And in eight of the states, more people were allowed to vote of the 13 than were usually allowed to vote. I mean, it wasn't perfect, but here were the rules in New York for the first time ever in New York. All adult free male citizens can vote on the constitution. No race tests, no property tests, no literacy tests, no religious tests. Wow. Now it's still imperfect because slaves don't vote, women don't vote, but they had never voted anywhere before in history. So again, compared to what had happened before, and I need to tell you one other thing. Slavery exists everywhere in the world at almost all times. It's not a uniquely American thing. Um, uh, uh, it, you, if your audience is, likes comedies, they can you know, remember a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. If they, if they like you know, epics, they can remember Ben-Hur you know, and Charlton Heston is enslaved and then he, he gets his freedom. If they read their Bible, they know actually that slavery is a practice in the Old Testament and, and the New Testament. So that's not news that there's slavery. And the ancient world had an idea of freeing individual slaves, emancipation, manumission. And that's what Ben-Hur is all about. And funny thing happened all the way to form Zero Mostel character wants to win his individual freedom, okay. But until the 1770s, no one in the world came up with the idea, not of freeing slaves, but ending slavery, abolition, not emancipation or manumission. And the first society in the world that ever organized to end slavery, abolish it completely, was formed in Philadelphia in 1775. Um, and 
Um, and its uh, presidents will later be Benjamin Franklin and Benjamin Rush, who signed the Declaration of Independence. And by 1780, slavery is abolished um, on a gradual basis in Pennsylvania by the Quakers, Massachusetts, John Adams, um, presides over a constitution that says everyone is born free and equal. And by 1783, that constitution in Massachusetts is going to be uh, construed to end slavery in Massachusetts. And by the way, someone who had argued for an end to slavery even before that was named James Otis. So that's why I wanted my audience to have James Otis and John Adams in the room together, okay? Because by 1783, slavery is abolished in um, um, in, in in Massachusetts, and it's abolished in um, about the same time in um, New Hampshire, um, and um, uh, and it's abolished on a gradual basis in Pennsylvania in beginning in 1780, and uh, then over the next decade, Connecticut and Rhode Island are going to join that crusade, and later on, New York and New Jersey. So um, the American Revolution wasn't perfect, um, and the Constitution wasn't perfect, um, but um, the idea of ending slavery actually begins in America and begins at exactly the same time as the American Revolution and, and, and begins with leading American revolutionaries like Ben Franklin and um, uh, James Otis and, J and John Adams I, and Alexander I, I don't um, uh, presume to speak for anyone who may be listening, but I think so I could hear someone saying part of the challenge for a number of people is that um, because of the words you just said, when you have such, when you create such a high bar, I mean, sovereignty rests with the people. No one ever heard of that before. At least, at least it, t it talked around in, in, in the enlightenment tables, but no one's willing to put it in practice. And because of such a hard, high bar and joining liberty and equality, unprecedented in human history, that I could see someone saying, "Well, why not slavery also?" But I, I think you, I think you, you adequately make the point uh, to that. To that. Um, the core purpose of the Declaration of Independence is to um, is is twofold. First, to say simply, we are no longer part of Britain. That's important because if we're independent sovereign nations on our own, we can make treaties with France. They can. Um, we can give them all sorts of trade concessions. They can formally recognize us and ally with us in, in, a, in a war against Britain. And, and we can't do that if we're merely domestic rebels. So the core thing is um, to basically say, just sim simply declare that these united uh, colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent. Okay. And the second related thing is to explain why we're justified in breaking with England. And, and the justification travels through inescapably this long train of abuses, um, uh, uh, taxing us without representation, um, uh, um, uh, um, violating judicial independence, shutting down juries, shutting down local assemblies, eventually um, waging war against the United States, um, against uh, Americans. And most of all, the, and then the last piece is, and we keep complaining about this and they won't even hear our petitions and respond to them. They won't even 
engage with us in dialogue. They won't converse with us. So yes, um, that, that phrase, long train of abuses, which comes from Locke actually, is necessary given their ideology to justify um, their breaking with, with Britain and with the king. Well, in fact, um, when you go through that litany of, um, of uh, that long train of abuses and usurpations, when you go through that litany, um, though many would like to say the Declaration is not a governing document per se, you find the seeds of the Bill of Rights, a many, number of the Bill of Rights uh, listed in those indictments. Right, because if, if you understand what George III and Parliament did wrong, so wrong that we're, Americans are justified in leaving, the photographic negative of that, the opposite of that is, here's what our governments are going to need to do in order to be legitimate, to enjoy the consent of the government. Remember that that sentence goes on to say, um, to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. And so governments exist to protect rights. You're right. And so the seeds of what will become the Bill of Rights can be seen in the Declaration of Independence, which talks about jury trial rights and, and no taxation without representation um, and the right of, of, of people to petition and to um, um, uh, and assemble and uh, peaceably in the life. And don't forget my favorite, quartering troops. Don't forget that one. <laughs> I won't. <laughs> Again, I'm talking with Yale Law Professor uh, the and political scientist Akhil Amar about his latest book, The World That Made Us. Uh, Professor Amar, you write about, and these are my words I'm calling this, the big five, uh, Alexander Hamilton, Benjamin Franklin, James Madison, Thomas Jefferson, and John Adams. And then there's George Washington. My take on reading your text is that the greatness of Washington and its contributions to who and what we are are almost taken for granted. Yet Washington doesn't have a long running musical on Broadway. He didn't write in a, in a mortal sentence that captures, in my view, America's civic virtue. And he's not the father of the Constitution. So if you would assess the big five versus Washington. So. Yes, one of the bit, my big claims is Washington literally and figuratively towers head and shoulders above the others. Um, no Washington, no constitution remotely like the one we have. Um, he is the indispensable man um, and, uh, and it's his constitution. So he actually is the father of the constitution even though people think it's James Madison. So here's the argument for that. First of all, um, uh, no one uh, when the Philadelphia Convention meets, because America is in trouble, and so the great men across the continent are summoned to, to try to come up with a plan. No one's ever heard of James Madison, except maybe a few people from Virginia or Alexander Hamilton. The only person um, that everyone has heard of, um, uh, apart from Washington, is Ben Franklin. So those are the two people who are truly continental figures. Washington comes out of retirement um, and is unanimously elected to preside over the convention. And he's trusted because he had the only army on the continent in 1781. He, he helped win America's independence. He has the only army on the continent and he gives it up rather, makes himself, rather than trying to make himself king or emperor or czar um, or whatever. 
um, and he goes to his farm and he, he says, um, I'm, I'm just going to go back to private life. And so people can trust him. He, he can be trusted to defend America, but not to but try to just grasp power for himself. So he is unanimously picked as the presiding officer of the Philadelphia Convention. He gets everything that he wants, which is a strong national government presided over by a very strong president. The key thing about the constitution is its presidency is vastly more powerful than any state governorship. Apart from that, it looks a lot like most state constitutions. It's written like most state constitutions in 1787. It has a bicameral legislature like every state constitution except Georgia and uh, Pennsylvania. It's got three branches of government, a legislature, an executive, a judiciary. Um, so it looks a lot like state constitutions, except the presidency is vastly more powerful than um, state governorships, four-year term, independently elected, re-eligible, a pardon pen, a veto pen. So really, really powerful presidency. That's because of George Washington. There are 55 people at Philadelphia um, total. They're never all there at the same time. 39 of them signed the document. No fewer than five of those um, 55 were actually aides de camp to Washington in uh, the Continental Army and from five different states. Um, Mifflin um, from Pennsylvania, Pinckney, uh, Charles Coatsworth from South Carolina, um, McHenry from um, Maryland, Randolph from Virginia, um, and Hamilton from New York. Um, a third of them served in the Continental Army, half of them bore arms, five of them were Washington's assistants. He doesn't even need to say anything. He just smiles and frowns and people do what he wants. And, and so that's why if you're just reading the notes of the convention, which Madison wrote, it's misleading because he doesn't talk. He gets, he's so powerful, he gets what he wants. That's, okay, so, uh, wait, wait, uh, so, so that's at Philadelphia. In the ratification process, because remember, it's just a plan. People are gonna have to decide yes or no. Um, in, in, uh, in these amazing um, elections that are very inclusive. Washington, the fact that Washington supported this thing counts for more than anyone else, than all the Federalist Papers, than anything that Madison or Hamilton um, ever wrote, times three. Um, and everyone understands that if the Constitution is ratified, Washington will leave um, his retirement and, and, and come back to, to serve, and which he in fact does, and he's unanimously elected president. Every single elector votes for him. And then four years later, he's unanimously re-elected president. No one, that's, that's just unheard of in American history. Nothing like that ever happens before. He's the person who actually also says in his first inaugural, gee, a bunch of people were really worried about the constitution. It doesn't have a bill of rights. We should have a bill of rights. He's, he articulates that in his first inaugural address. So he's the father really of the constitution and of the bill of rights and of, of the country. And then he does one last great thing. He, he stabilizes the country as its first um, president. He brings in people from right and left, uh, Hamilton on his right, Jefferson on his left. He's a unifying figure. He leaves office. Um, even though he could have been re-reelected in order to establish a principle that, that the Republic should be bigger than any one man. It shouldn't be a cult of Trump or any or, or anyone else for that matter. And then, because he's a quiet guy, um, he, he's, he's not a big talker, a uh, big writer. He does one other amazing thing, his last act. In his last act, 
He provides in his last will and testament for the freeing of his slaves. And he's trying to send a signal to America about what we have to be. He grows, he matures. Jefferson in my telling actually gets worse. He starts out as an idealistic anti-slavery guy and creates a pro-slavery party. <coughs> and, and, you know, he sells himself out. We're, we're in a conversation right now about whether politicians are gonna be true to their core or gonna sell themselves out. Jefferson starts out very idealistic and sells out on slavery. Hmm. Madison, the same thing. These guys start out saying we shouldn't extend slavery into the West, the Northwest Ordinance was Jefferson's idea. Madison pushed it through the first Congress saying, don't spread slavery. By the end of their lives, they're advocating spreading slavery to the West, spreading this virus. So, so they, you know, I try to say what's impressive about them, but their arc is downward. Jefferson isn't even there when the constitution is adopted. Madison is just a little um, research assistant to, to Washington, so to speak, and gets worse on slavery. And so does Jefferson. Washington is the man and grows and grows and grows morally. Franklin dies pretty early on. He's a great man. Hamilton is Washington's right hand. So Hamilton basically is just Washington's guy. He's, he's the horse that Washington rides. He's the fastest horse in the, the, the country, but only Washington can ride him. Um, um, and, um, and as for John Adams, who you know, begins in chapter one, good, decent person, but he's the only president who gets tossed out and doesn't get reelected because he signs his name to a law that makes it a crime to criticize the president. And you can't go around criticizing your um, critics, I'm sorry, um, uh, criminalizing your critics. And that's one of the reasons you see that Donald Trump always made me nervous because you know, even before he's elected, he's saying, lock her up, lock her up. No, presidents can't go around putting their critics in prison. And that's what Trump threatened to do um, uh, and, and made me nervous. And that's what John Adams actually did. So now I've explained why Washington is greater than Adams, greater than his assistant, Hamilton, greater than the, the people who become um, uh, increasingly um, disappointing slaveholders, um, Jefferson and, um, uh, and, and Madison. And, and Franklin, who's epic, just dies too soon. He dies in 1790, so um, uh, yeah. But his last great act, and this is my last chapter, is to basically say we should get rid of slavery. So both Franklin and Washington, at the end of their lives, um, they're, they're, in effect, their they're rosebud, their farewell message, the final farewell message to their countrymen is actually saying to save our souls, to redeem actually what's great about America, we've got to end slavery. And, and so Franklin and Washington are head and shoulders above. I want to conclude this conversation uh, about uh, your dedication. Why those five individuals, and was there something that connects them to your text? Something that connects whom to the text? Uh, the, the five individuals you, you dedicated the book to. Why those five, and was, oh. it, was it something that connects them to your text? Here's what I say on my dedication page. This book is dedicated to Lynn manuel Miranda, Vanessa Nadal, Ron Chernow, and Kaiser Khan. And of course, to Neil Kumar Katyal, who introduced me to each of you. Thank you all jointly and severally for helping me and so many others see the true meaning of America. And then at the very end of my acknowledgements, I say, this book is a love letter to America and the people to whom I dedicated the book helped me see what's so amazing about America. So here's what I wanna say about them. First of all, 
note the diversity. Let's talk about religion. Since I said, you know, when you asked me, you know, why this book and why now, we're a religiously diverse nation. Um, um, we have to be, um, what we have in common is not religion. And I happen to be an adult convert Christian. And Neil is Hindu. And Kaiser Khan is Muslim. And Ron Chernow is Jewish. And Lynn Miranda was born Catholic. And I don't know, you know, what he is today. And his wife, Vanessa Nadal, who's a friend of mine um, uh, and whom I very much admire, I've never asked her. Okay, um, uh, but that's one thing. Look at the diversity. Some of us um, are first generation born in the United States, like Neil and yours truly. Kaiser Khan himself is an immigrant, um, uh, and, um, and and others, our families might have been here for a longer time. Some white, you know, uh, Ron Chernow. Others brown, um, 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 non-white. Here's, uh, um, uh, uh, Neil introduced me to all of them and Neil is uh, my student and I love my students. You know Neil's brother-in-law, Jeff Rosen, he's been a, a guest on your show. I introduced Jeff to Neil. Um, Jeff happens to be grown up uh, uh, Jewish and, and, and Neil Hindu. They became best friends. I introduced them and after about a year, after they'd hung out together a lot, Jeff finally tells, he says, you know, I've got a sister. Um, she might like you, you might like her. And in fact, um, Jeff, uh, Jeff's sister marries Neil. Um, I was at the wedding, uh, her name is Joanna. Some people called it a Hindu wedding. I called it Om Shalom, um, but only in America. Um, and Neil introduced me to all these folks. And I love my students and I love that. But, but let me finally say something about Lynn Miranda. And you know, I have, I never told him that the book is dedicated to him. I don't know if he knows it yet. Um, it's only been out for um, a, a, a couple of weeks. But when I saw Hamilton, which Neil got me tickets to when we went down to Puerto Rico and Lynn reprised his role as Hamilton um, in Puerto Rico for charity, what I saw is someone who loved America but also was trying to unite left and right, black and white. He was telling a story that conservatives could like about being a lot smarter and working a lot harder and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. But he's also telling a story that um, liberal Americans, you know, can, can relate to about, um, uh, about someone who was actually born at the bottom. How does a, um, a, a bastard, orphan, son of a whore, you know, become actually uh, 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 someone? Um, he's using black and brown actors um, in, a, in a distinctively um, black American music tradition, hip hop, to, to tell the story of a white American, but, but an immigrant in a way, you know, someone who came from um, uh, 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 across the water. And Lynn, of course, has roots, not just in, in New York, but in Puerto Rico. And so, you know, he's a kind of insider, outsider. So what I love about Lynn is he's managed in a very polarized, divisive time to actually, um, connect to uh, conservative patriots um, and, um, and liberal reformers, to, to white and black and brown. Um, and that's my vision of America. Um, and, and, um, and so that's why the book is dedicated to um, a religiously diverse group of folks. Um, and what they have in common is I think we're all patriots. We all love, uh, love America in a deep, deep way. The title of the book, The Words That Made Us, and I've been speaking with renowned Yale law professor and political scientist, Professor Kilomar. Sir, thank you so much for joining me today on The Public Morality. It's been an honor to be in conversation with you.
Let's do it again, Byron. Thank you. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at Byron at PublicMorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at PublicMorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the public morality at their studios. The public morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. In the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at the public morality, I'm Byron Williams. (laughs) 